Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. If you love to cook or just love to eat, which is pretty much all of us in this episode, it's for you. We're excited to welcome our guest, award-winning magazine editor, Dorothy Kalins, who's held top editorial positions at Newsweek and Metropolitan Home. She's had a long career in food media and has collaborated on the production of many cookbooks. Dorothy was the founding editor of the food and wine magazine, Savure, and she's the author of a great new book called The Kitchen Whisperers, Cooking with the Wisdom of Our Friends. Dorothy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Who are these kitchen whisperers and why did you decide to write about them? In other words, how did the book come about? The book came about as I was washing salad greens that I bought at the farmer's market. And I heard in my head... My publisher thinks that it sounds crazy if you have voices in your head, so they wouldn't let me have the subtitle um, cooking with the voices in your head, but I know that we have them, and I know that they're there. So it's it, the, the subtitle is cooking with the wisdom of our friends, which is very uh, safe. But basically, I heard the voice of a French grandmother who I knew saying to me, you must wash your salad greens three times. And I, and then I thought I started thinking about that. And I started thinking about how many of the things that I do when I'm alone in the kitchen and I'm cooking uh, are based on what people have told me. Much more powerful, perhaps, than things that I've read or written or recipes that I've developed or or followed, there are certain truths that we that I began to trace back to the people who had told me about them or whom I watched. And I thought, you know what? I think we all have experiences like that. And we all have our own kitchen whispers. So that was the beginning of the idea. No offense, mom, but there have been some things (laughs) over the years that my sister and I have kind of rolled our eyes at that. Oh, mom always said to do this, but you know, we think we know better and it's maybe even not correct, but we still hear her voice and we do it that way. Why do you think that we do that? Even if it's maybe not the best? Yeah, I think maybe it's our own history that we trust. And I think it's embedded somewhere. And it feels good. I mean, I think that it does. I know that the first chapter of the book is called Mothers and Daughters, which holds great appeal for Laura and I as a mother-daughter duo. (laughs) Why did you put it first in the book? I needed to start with ground zero. And, you know, there's so many people who are lucky enough to have mothers and grandmothers and grandfathers and fathers who were real inspirations to them. 
And I realized that my mother was not necessarily that person, that there were other things that she gave me, but that was not where I picked up things. And then I had to think very carefully about what I really did owe to my mother and what I learned. And um, I think you alluded to this. Sometimes we do things deliberately the other way because our mothers told us. And, and then I end the book with a chapter called Daughters and Mothers, where I reflect on how my stepdaughter grew up with me in the kitchen and what she keeps and what she doesn't. So I, mean, I just think it's a, it's a dance, it's a generational dance. Do you think that great cooks teach future great cooks or can there be a mother who maybe is an average cook and produces somebody who's a great cook simply because they love to be in the kitchen? You know, I don't know about that phrase, great cook, because you, you, I think you get a reverence for ingredients from, from whomever you cook with or watch cook or are influenced by. And, you know, there's the, the quintessential grandmother who makes everything from scratch because she had to. And she just wanted everything to look great and to treat her ingredients with reverence. And so I think it's something ineffable. It's not so much just knowing how to whip up a great sauce or a pie or a, or or whatever. It's really, I think it starts with reverence from ingredients. And I know chefs who have grown up with parents who are not cooks and who become, have found their way to do that. And there are other ones who, who've grown up with people who are great cooks. So I, you know what? Six of one. <laughs> you know, I, I, think that, I, I think maybe that's why we adopt the ideas from our kitchen whisperers, because if we're the kind of people who have a reverence for other people's ideas, um, we'll do that. We'll do it with ideas about relationships or child raising or whatever else. Yeah, yeah. I love your book because you write about the things that were in your kitchen pantry growing up, and they matched a lot of the things in our pantry when I was growing up and, and uh -huh. also when I was raising kids on my own. You talk about strawberry jello and chocolate pudding packages and Campbell's yep. soup and Bisquick and canned corn. And none of these are gourmet items, but they sure bring back great memories. When I think of Bisquick, for example, when I was reading your book and I thought of Bisquick, I thought of my mom saying, oh, you always have to have Bisquick on hand because you can make anything from biscuits to pancakes. So that's and, a voice I that I heard. we ever actually really used Bisquick, but oh, you yeah. always had it on hand. I always it, was, had, it was always on hand. We made biscuits yeah. out of it. I Sometimes. You might've been too little <laughs> to remember that. <laughs> there was a great reverence for packaged things that made our lives easier. And that was one of them. You also write about only a very bad child would not remember her mother's meatloaf. And I had to nod in agreement in, in reading that. What did your kitchen whisperers tell you about meatloaf? We have an experience with meatloaf from the lunch tray or the college lunch tray that we that we got some kind of mealy, grainy, disgusting slab of whatever it was. And my mother's meatloaf was, was really a delicate presentation. And I kind of worked myself back to her recipe. And one of the things that she did 
and I remember this from my childhood, that she soaked bread in milk. And that made what the French call a panade, which which lightened and flavored the the meat mixture. Yeah, so we that, did the same, soaking the breadcrumbs in the milk. You did that too. Yes, yes. That's oh, that's another reason why I loved your book. <laughs> <laughs> Reading that memory. And you know, and and so that I wouldn't even think of making a meatloaf without doing that now. And uh, and it's it's just something that that you know again the t- the title of your program is nobody told me nobody told me you have to make meatloaf with bread soaked in milk but I just internalized that. What makes me nervous for future generations who don't have that wisdom. They're not going to get it from the older generation because they have technology and they're able to find the best recipes online. Whatever recipes they happen to download, whether they're the best or not. Right. Exactly. exactly. There's so many, you look up chocolate chip cookies and you have, everybody says that they're the best, Uh but I think you're, (laughs) I think you're really missing out on something. Do you feel like there are going to be fewer kitchen whisperers and, and maybe people will have a little bit more of a callous and perfectionist attitude in the kitchen. I'm kind of afraid of that. For example, I talk about my son who's now 28 and he would walk into my office and I have maybe 9,000 cookbooks in here. And he would go, he'd go on my computer and download something. And I said, how do you know it's any good? How do you know that recipe is any good? He said, I don't know, it's fine. And then, (laughs) and then, you know what? He is a good cook and he can do things and he does it. And uh, you know what? You just have to give up on some of that. I think that there's more of a, of a value now for not just what's new, but for what's good. And I, I guess I like to think that. Yeah. And I think that a lot of my mom's cookbooks from when she was growing up are a lot better than what I can find online. And if we're saying meatloaf, for example, and a recipe I would find online for meatloaf just wouldn't be the same as my mom's. And I would still think hers was the best, even though it maybe wasn't the fanciest. And my recipe yeah. is grandma's recipe. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. You know, they, Dorothy, they, they knew things. <laughs> yeah. And, and when I think about my kitchen whisperers, for me, Thanksgiving and Christmas meals were the times when I absorbed most of the cooking knowledge I got from my mother and my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if you found that that was a similar story for a lot of people, that those Thanksgiving and Christmas meals just generated a lot of knowledge about about cooking. I think there is no question about it. It's it's the only ritualized meal that we have left holidays and, and Thanksgiving. And I have a section in, in the mothers and daughters chapter about Thanksgiving and about our Thanksgiving table and, and about how the meal has changed and evolved over time. And uh, that that's when, you know, how, how do you make gravy that, you know, you're standing at the stove and you're trying to, you're figuring these things out and there's an aunt who comes in and she knows how to do it. And thank you for that. And <laughs> And there's my mother who would be really concerned on about which serving platter I put the 
turkey on and how did I put the cranberry sauce? And even though her cranberry sauce, I do write this, came out of a can and you sliced it. You know, you, did you have that too growing up, Jan? I was going to say that, that your, your cranberry sauce, <laughs> the, the stories you told about the cranberry sauce also resonated with me because you talked about how your mother's recipe for cranberry sauce involved opening a chilled can of ocean spray. And I think back to, to the fact that my grandmother painstakingly made her own cranberry sauce, but my mother decided she liked ocean spray just as much. And uh -huh. so she bought the whole berry cranberry sauce and told uh -huh. me to do the same, but to use a spoon to mix it around before you put it on the dish on the table, because that way people couldn't see the can, the can marks. marks. That but makes I mean, so much I remember, sense. I exactly right. I remember seeing the can marks on, on, on ours when we were growing. So I was, I've always, you know, I've always gone to the farmer's market and gotten organic can cranberries to make. And, you know, my sister has done the same thing. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's this way and that the pendulum swings. Can you remember one specific instance that made you realize that you wanted to make food and cooking the focus of your life? When we were doing Metropolitan Home, um, which was really an architecture and design magazine, we had a very strong food uh, presence because we had really, really good editors and we we were generationally at the time when Alice Waters was starting Chez Panisse and Jonathan Waxman was her chef. And there, you know, there were just great people. It was an, the, the beginning of the heyday of, of an American sensibility about cooking. And that storyline journalistically drew me passionately to the subject. So it was really about how our generation was going to change the way America ate. And, and that, you know, that's a bit grandiose, but basically it was, and it was two editors, uh, Christopher Hirschheimer and Coleman Andrews, who were both in my book, um, with whom we started Sever, the three of us started Sever, which began as an idea called home cooking, because the idea was not to go to all to restaurants for all this food that was American grown and American made and American inspired, but to come together and know how to make it and and understand the origins and the authenticity. I was struck in reading your book that food really holds generations together. You write about how there is always plenty of room at your Thanksgiving table for people who are no longer there. And, and those holiday meals are really the times we fondly remember with food and dinner plates and silverware, those people who were once with us and whose spirit yes. we still feel a bit at those times. Yes. yes. I, I think there's no question about it. I mean, I, I was writing the Thanksgiving chapter this year when um, there was only me and my husband at our table and we, my son lives in town and we delivered it to him. I mean, we just didn't even want him to come. And because of the pandemic, it was such a startling shock to, to not have 25 or 30 people around our table. And it just meant, it meant so much more than just, missing a meal. It meant missing these rituals that, that are rarer and rarer now. On our Thanksgiving last year, I remember so much that my sister wasn't there. And it was like, 
Thanksgiving didn't happen traditionally and that we were really thankful, but we didn't even do turkey. And you just don't really realize how valuable those moments are in those times in the kitchen, even if they're frustrating until you don't have them anymore. That's right. I think that's true. I don't know whether that means that when we get through this awful time, um, people are going to come back and do things in a more meaningful way. You always hope that's going to be true, but who knows? Yeah. Maybe there's more ordering in of bad Chinese food. I don't know. Which was fun at the time when it started. It was like, this is the greatest thing. Now, yeah. not so much. Yeah. Not yeah. So much. Uh-uh. <laughs> well, well, how do you think we changed as far as cooking and baking are concerned during the pandemic? Because you, you were seeing a lot of people posting online about what they were cooking. About, oh, yeah, because they were at home and that, that whole sourdough bread trend, which never attracted me at all. <laughs> I, I, I would rather. Not us either. We got in the car and went to an incredible bakery in, in Bushwick, Brooklyn called Lamprey Marie and and bought our bread. And I mean, it was about a 45 minute drive each way. And that was our that was my homage to bread. And I, I just um, I but I think that people were all of a sudden jolted into realizing they had to take care of themselves in a way that was maybe even a, a second thought. Oh, we'll go here for dinner. We'll we'll order in from there. We'll do with this. And all of a sudden those options weren't there. And people were thrown back on their own resources. And I like that. I think that that's empowering to all of us, isn't it? That we know how to take care of ourselves. Yeah. And we know how to cook if we didn't think that we could. And at the time, we'd been going out a lot for dinner almost every single night. And it was a shock to us. It was such a a change to not be going out and to realize Uh that we could cook or we could have takeout at home and that those memories were really just as wonderful as paying a lot to go out. And yeah, they, they, like they're different, but but they're better. Yeah, we yeah. were around the kitchen table together. Yes, exactly. And even if we're just putting out plates that were my my great grandma's or something, it was exactly. something we didn't do when we were going out. Right. The last chapter in the book, Daughters and Mothers, talks about how my stepdaughter, Sandrine, had to learn really had to cook for her family because she was up in a farmhouse in upstate New York and which had been just their weekend house. And they moved there because they have a young child and they wanted him to go to school if he could uh, in person. And he was able to do that after the much of the restriction was left. But she had to cook every single day. There wasn't any choice. She lived in the country and It was really hard, but she found a way, I think, toward her own confidence. That was an incredible pandemic story. They were living in in Red Hook in Brooklyn, and she and her husband were both working, and they'd arrive home, and then, you know, somebody would pick up something and, you know, or they'd order in, and and it, it was never a family ritual, and it has become that, which is pretty great. What advice would you have for a young person just starting to cook? Where should they look for guidance and and encouragement and confidence? Besides their own family. Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think they need to know to start from the ingredients. And that was the big big lesson that all of us that Sever and our generation 
learned, which is that, you know, you can't, it's, you don't make, you don't make a, a recipe, you buy the ingredients that speak to you that seem fresh and interesting and challenging. And then you come home and figure out what to do with them. Now, you know, that certainly falls on the deaf ears of my son, who's, you know, is working full time, and he's working at a restaurant actually right now. And he, you know, he'll, he'll cook something, but not, he doesn't really have to all the time because there's so many little places to dive into and pick up stuff. And I think that it's just a matter of being interested. There are a million books and I don't think any one book is, is the answer, but I think if you probably take any, any good cookbook and sit down and pay attention to it, I think that there's a lot of online food instruction that, that, you know, some people like it. I mean, Lincoln, my son likes it. He likes certain things. He learns things from that. I guess it doesn't matter where you get it. It's just if you keep doing it. Practice. Practice and, and understanding that you're practicing. And so if something didn't turn out so great, so why was that? And maybe it was too dry. Maybe I didn't add enough this. Maybe it was I didn't buy the right thing. I don't know. But if you internalize it as something that's a constant learning process, I think you're happier. Right, right. Your research for this book sounds like it was a tremendous amount of fun. And I'm <laughs> wondering whose story stuck out to you the most and, and why it did. I have been so fortunate to know such wonderful people and wonderful cooks in my life so that there's really chapters my two co-editors at Sever, Christopher Hersheimer, who's a, who's a wonderful cook and an incredible human being. And I tell her story about how she knew she had the fingertips at a very early age, way before any of us did. And Coleman, who is a, a consummate word editor and writer, also just is able to um, intellectually conceptualize anything. And they're, they're, so I, everybody has a different story. I tell a story about um, Marcella Hazan, who I was fortunate enough to get to know. And, you know, she was always teaching. She was always talking. I mean, even if she was having dinner or making dinner for friends, she would say, Dorothy, don't make sure you don't stir, stir too much. You don't put the salt in the water before you the water come to a ball. I mean, you just those. She she talks to me still, Marcella, in my head, and and you know she was she never had very much patience for the way food looked. It was her for her. It was always the way it tasted, and of course she was the she she was important that way. There was a little sidetrack that we all got onto you know beautiful plates and plating food was really important. Well, that's not where it is. And so she got into my head in an early stage. I was fortunate enough to get to know her over a number of years and everything she said, I remember. Wow, that's a gift. I found that as I was reading your book, I suddenly remembered cooking stories from my life that that's would not what I have- hope would happen. <laughs> <laughs> I did that's, too. No, that's that's the thing. I, I suddenly remembered these cooking stories that that would not have cropped up were it not for the memories that you shared. So I really thank you for that. And and I was wondering, that was going to be my question, is that what your goal was in, in writing this book to sort of trigger memories for all of us who read it. 
absolutely. I my my feeling is that we all have voices in our heads and we're not nuts. <laughs> and we all have people whose memories we evoke wittingly or not when we make the things that they talk about. The the wonderful woman who was a, a, just a great friend to me as I was as I was growing up, Camille Lehman, you know, the idea of her putting the strawberries on a plate. I never forget that. I always think about her when I do that. I think about her when I put little food in containers in the refrigerator. How does that really look? You just don't slap it in there. You know, you, 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 it's, a, it's about feeling what you've taken from the people who you've known that you really value and in some way you keep them alive in your head. Right. Our show is called Nobody Told Me. So we always ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So I was really curious to know what nobody told you about the value beyond good food of spending time in the kitchen that you wish that they had because it would have made you cherish those moments even more. I think that was not valued. Certainly when I was growing up, cooking was less important than doing well on your SATs or getting into the the right school or going out with the right cute boy or whatever, whatever the the values were. And it, it wasn't until much later that I realized that just the ability to put food on the table for a group of friends and or family is the priceless thing of, of our lives. I mean, that's what we, that's what matters. And my mother certainly never told me that. She did it, but I don't even know if anybody told her. So I guess nobody told me that how important it was to make dinner for people, to have dinner for people, to have food for people, to offer, to share what you have with people, because that's, living. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, along those lines, I think nobody told me to pay more attention to what my mother and grandmother were doing in the kitchen (laughs) so that I could remember it more. That's right. It was our job to kind of uh, negate everything. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a website or are you on on social media? I'm on social media on um, on Twitter and Instagram, and I don't have a website. I've, you know, I've I've been a writer and a book producer, and a, I've never really had to have a website. Maybe I'll have to do it somewhere, but I just do um, Instagram dkalens at dkalens, and Twitter is at kalens. We thank you so much for joining us. This has been so much fun, and it's been a trip down memory lane for me. And I think your book will be that for for anybody who picks it up. You a write, real gift. Yeah, yeah, you write in such a way that I feel like I'm in the kitchen with you and all of these people. And I'm, oh, I I'm, wish we were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's like you get the benefits of reading the book, but at the same time, you're also getting all these great memories that come with it that you wouldn't really think of otherwise. Yeah. So thank you for that. Well, thank you both. It's been so much fun to talk to you. Again, our thanks to Dorothy Kalins, and her latest book is called The Kitchen Whisperers, Cooking with the Wisdom of Our Friends. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us.